Welcome to the One O'ahu Podcast. I'm Brandi Higa, and today is Thursday, September 14th, 2023. And after some time on the Valley Isle, we're back on O'ahu this week. I'm joined by the Deputy Director for the City and County of Honolulu's Department of Emergency Management, Jennifer Walter. Jennifer, thank you for making some time for us. No, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Uh, I want to start with your initial response you know, it's it's kind of been the headline in the news for a while now, and it will be for months, maybe years to come. The devastating fires on Maui. When those initial images of Lahaina came in, I think our collective hearts sunk. And I'm wondering what that experience was like for you. I think I'm still processing a little bit about how to describe how I felt. Um, I've been involved in a number of disasters over the years, but it um, this one hit different, obviously. Like, you know, seeing people we work alongside regularly what they were going through but seeing what could actually happen here the worst case scenario you know we do planning all the time for events that are unthinkable and then to see one in your own state where um kind of all your worst fears are are realized was it was really hard to watch on behalf of the people of of maui and you know it makes me reflect and I think our staff here reflect on just how important our work is and how you know much more we have to do um, and kind of whether it's understanding the risks or being ready to support the community yeah this was um, this one was really uh, hard to you know to watch it it felt it felt personal I think for everybody um, even though it wasn't our island and in the days and weeks following, uh, here in the city and county of Honolulu, a few of us were deployed to Maui to help with that response effort. Um, myself being one of them, you being one of them as well. What was your role on the Valley Isle? Really, I was there to support in the EOC kind of um, help with the overall operations. And largely what I ended up doing was to try to be a connector. You know, I've um, Working in the EOC, um, you kind of can step back and see a lot of gaps and help connect people. So whether it was the Maui finance director kind of trying to figure out, you know, what costs are eligible for reimbursement and kind of making sure he's connected to the state. So little things like that. But I think the biggest thing is um, one of the real assets that was brought in was um, what they call an incident management team from CAL FIRE. So these are the people that do it all the time. Um, as a team of about 60 people that specialize in just incident organization and coordination. So a lot of what I did was to try to help them get integrated into the EOC structure, kind of you know meet the key people um, so that they could really support Maui most effectively and, and um, kind of get an assessment of what's going on so they could take off and really help the county. And um, I think today is their last day. They're, they're finally leaving. They've been there a month, um, kind of bringing their, their skill set to bear on the, on, on the event kind of coordination part of it. Yeah, on the last episode of this podcast, actually, we had John Heggie on from Cal Fire. And for those who aren't familiar, you know, it's kind of odd to see the Cal Fire shirts throughout, you know, the EOC on Maui. But what do you think that department was able to do for Maui um, for the county, you know, for the state as well. But what do you think they were able to do? Because not everyone's able to make that bridge. Yeah, you know, they, they did so many things. I think, um, you know, one of the things like I emphasize, and, and this came up in, you know, conversation when I was on Maui, is that it is so important to use mutual aid. I think a lot of people think, oh, you had to bring in help from the outside. Why weren't you able to do this? No, no, no. This is how the system works in emergency management. We get the help 
to give the help. And one of the most important things you can do is to look around to other states and say, who's done this before? Who are the, the best people at this? And that's kind of what Cal Fire was. Really, like a lot of what they, they bring is, is process and organization. And so to kind of get everybody working together, and that sounds really simplistic, but you have so many agencies and so many issues going on, um, if you don't kind of keep to a rhythm and get a real clear understanding among everybody, here's the objectives, here's the information you need to do your job. So they have a lot of products and processes that help with that. But I think one of the things that they were able to do too, you know, when we, I got to Maui about the same time as then, it was I think about 10 days into the disaster, people were exhausted. You had a really traumatic event. I don't think anybody in in that operation center had had a day off. Mm -hmm. Some of them, many more than I probably even know, had lost their homes. Um, You know, they were impacted and they were there working. And I think just having those resources to to let those people, as they could, um, at least have a normal night's sleep. And um, that was a great relief, I think, that the CAL FIRE team brought. Um, And I I think just in addition to kind of understanding the issues um, and and kind of, you know, helping with the, the structure and kind of helping the county, you know, none of us have been through something like this before, like the process yeah. of like, you know, re-entry, the debris clearance, all of those things and kind of define the phases to come that every everybody on Maui is going to have to keep working through. Yeah, right now, that's that's one of the main questions, right? When can residents move back into those areas? And I want to know from your experience, what are the difficulties that come with this current stage we're in where they're removing the hazardous materials to make it safe for those residents to move back in? Yeah, I think, um, you know, this was one of the things that I think is really, for us, we need to be watching carefully from, you know, where we sit on Oahu and kind of understanding the issues because we haven't had a re-entry operation Mm -hmm. like this um, to this extent. I think, you know, they're really focused on making sure that they're not creating secondary hazards and impacts on people that we might not see right away, you know, if they just let people in and then years later you have other health impacts that that weren't known. And I think um, trying to make sure that it's safe as possible, but which takes time and, but balancing that against people who really just wanna see where their home was, see if there's anything that, that can be salvaged, that's really tricky. And I think, you know, this is new to all of us in a state that hasn't had a major wildfire. And I think figuring out that process and how to communicate it to people and the time, I think a lot of that is yeah. just the uncertainty, right? Um, it's it's hard to put a definitive, this is how long it will take. We have a lot of unique challenges too, where it makes it hard even to look at how quickly you know, a jurisdiction in California did it versus here, just because of some of the logistical issues that we have with, um, you know, getting uh, the right experts in, shipping debris off island. There's just a lot of complexity here, um, in addition to this being something we haven't dealt with before. You mentioned that you got there um, maybe about 10 days after the, the disaster. What is the city and county of Honolulu's role now? Do we still have help on the valley or what, what's our role? Yeah, currently? we've been really committed 
to doing everything we can um, to providing mutual aid, um, you know, any personnel that, that we can bring that meets a need that Maui has. Um, so initially, we sent some fire personnel over to help with the fire incident management, and then that kind of transitioned into EOC support. So we've had Honolulu Fire over there mm-hmm. almost continuously. Um, Honolulu Police is over there providing some peer support. Uh, we provided communications people, uh, just experts to kind of um, help with that. You talked about the public information officers. One of the things that we're trying to do too is because, you know, a lot of times we think of emergency and we think of just police and fire. But if you look at the people that are really involved in this kind of long slog, it's like they're environmental services people, you know, with the debris or their public works people, um, all sorts of other agencies we don't typically think of like as emergency agencies. And there's a lot of, you know, secondary issues with, you know, kind of tracking the cost of this and things like that. So, for instance, this week, I think we sent over some people from um, budget and fiscal services to just experience what it means because until you're faced with the hugely complex overwhelming event it's it's really hard abstractly to kind of train people so we're trying to find opportunities you know to help and then um, at the same time to kind of give people an understanding that's going to help them come back and inform us about where we might have gaps, what we need to do bigger um, and, and better if, if we have this kind of event in the future. You kind of talked about this road to recovery and, and it's going to be a long road, but what can people here on Oahu do now to help? Because in the early days, well intended, but we saw a lot of donation drives, right? And mm-hmm. then the messaging came out from the county, stop, right? We don't have the system in place right now to be taking the, um, this much, at least a physical donation. So what can people here on Oahu first do now and then secondly that situation we saw earlier where the donation drives yeah i think one of the things and this is a challenging part and this was one of the messages we always try to give early on when everyone wants to help is that recovery is a long hard process in every disaster and what happens is it fades from the headlines Mm -hmm. and we're not there yet but unfortunately at some point that's going to happen and so a lot of the immediate support you know the people who can get on their feet will start to get on their feet, but you'll have a whole bunch of people where, despite whatever FEMA offered or the initial donations, that are still struggling. And because it's not front page news, a lot of times goodwill has just dried up. It's not top of mind. So I think finding opportunities, maybe um, you know, even in a couple months from now, of like you know doing a a small fundraiser or something like that to meet the long-term needs. And I would really look at like what agencies are supporting those long-term needs. Who who are the ones that are committed to being around Mm -hmm. in the longer term? Um, I know the the governor's offices, um, you know, work to put stuff out with people who have homes available for rent and things like that. I think all that's important. is to look at kind of some of the needs that the agencies are putting out, ones who are actively involved in the disaster. Um, you know, one group that coordinates a lot of the efforts are the voluntary organizations active in disaster, um, figuring out which of those are planning kind of long-term recovery programs for people and um, how to provide either financial support or maybe it's, you know, um, if other needs come up, I'm, I'm not sure what today's need is. Um, you know, if it's fostering, you know, animals or whatever it is, there's just a lot of long-term things that come up that aren't readily transparent at the beginning. You know, as, as, as hard as it is, sometimes cash is still probably always best because it's, it's the most flexible. Um, you get what you need today, which you can't always anticipate, you know? And so sometimes these donation drives 
can be can be really helpful proper, properly done, but sometimes it takes a couple weeks to collect it, then you've got to ship it, and whatever that organization needed three weeks ago when you started that effort might not be today. Mm-hmm. So I think if, if those are, you know, places people want to put energy, doing that as a yard sale and donating proceeds, things like that, to give the, the flexibility um, to the agencies that are helping on Maui for the long term. It's hard to think of us right now, right, in the city and county of Honolulu, but the questions have been coming in. Are there any lessons learned or things that we can implement into our own wildfire emergency planning here on Oahu? Has that come up for you folks and, and kind of what's the status? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, we've been having a number of meetings. I think, um, you know, I think one of the things is we need to reimagine the worst case scenario for wildfire. And I think, you know, we've always recognized it as a threat it's in our hazard mitigation plan we talk about you know the urban um you know rural interface and and in the potential for wildfire i think we'd never imagine one on i think the scale of like just wiping out you know a whole area like this and i so i think we need to make sure that we're really understanding the risk and that we're doing things like we do with other hazards that we see as high risk is is making sure that we're talking about it when we do public education that we're trying to find projects to do long-term mitigation that reduces the risk you know we've we focus so much on hurricanes tsunami floods and and those aren't any you know less bad today or concerning but i think you know holistically from how we prepare to where we try to um, get grant money to help the agencies involved make investments and and reducing risk, like we we've really got to relook at um, how the wildfire threat and because I, I think it's only going to get worse with the the way that the climate's changing. I th- I think the other thing is I think a lot of the lessons for us are are also going to come with this response. I mean, there's the wildfire threat side and kind of our our preparedness, our response plans, but the long-term recovery is really complex and a lot of the issues we're seeing on Maui um, I can only imagine them being exactly the same you know over here like things like long-term housing or um, you know how to get people back on their feet some of the economic impacts that they're going to experience and I think that never having seen a recovery of that scale in Hawaii and some of our challenges with just you know we can't just how quickly rebuild, you know, in the way some area or, you know, or people can't um, quickly move to a neighboring community, you know, where there's a whole bunch of housing, how that takes shape and what we can learn from that and apply here is is something that, you know, we're paying attention to because um, these aren't problems that are unique to Maui or challenges. We would have them, too. Have you heard any concerns from the public or the community yet, I guess, on you know, preventative measures, things we can do now, fireproofing homes, um, you know, creating fire bricks, if that's even necessary, where we have a lot of brush fires here on Oahu, um, anything like that, where there's kind of, you know, they're asking for this call to action. Um, there, there's been some, I think um, the we've put some stuff on social media. There's an organization that really um, is dedicated to educating on wildland fires, um, Honolulu Fire Department, which really takes the lead and is, you know, kind of our experts in terms of per- fire prevention and things like that, has a lot of great resources on their website that we're, we're trying to expose people to. I think what we need to do n- next is make sure that we're promoting this all the time when we talk about 
about hurricane, tsunami. We're also talking about wildfire. And so the same way we talk about protecting your home from hurricane, making sure that we're repeating those those messages there. But yeah, I would refer to the Honolulu Fire Department website. They have a brochure with a lot of actions that people can start taking, you know, if they have these kinds of questions. There's also conversations, you know, looking at bigger picture, just some of the larger mitigation actions that need to happen um, to reduce the threat. You know, a lot of concerns about these grasses that are extremely flammable, non-native grasses. Um, how do we do that? Are there places where there need to be more mitigation efforts for fire breaks and stuff like that? That's not something that our agency, Department of Emergency Management, you know, does. We don't get the bulldozer and go do the fire yeah, break yeah. or decide where it needs to be. But what we do have is access to some federal grant monies, um, you know, that we can try to get the agencies that are responsible for that to kind of make those investments. One of the things after these really big disasters um, that are declared as a major disaster by the president is a certain amount of the cost of that event for the federal government becomes available to the jurisdiction, in this case statewide, um, as money that can be used for grants for mitigation. And so that's one of the things we want to look at is funds become available to do these long-term actions that really reduce risk. What are some projects we might have here on Oahu related to wildfire that um, would be eligible for this kind of funding? So that's some of the things that our agency, I think, can help with is just connect the right stakeholders um, to kind of funding opportunities as well. On August 8th, our emergency operations center here in Honolulu was actually activated, but mm -hmm. that was due to high wind. Yeah. Um, not not any active fires. So how and when is this, we're sitting in the EOC right now, how, how and when is this EOC activated? So um, for things that we can anticipate, like a lot of weather hazards, we have a whole matrix really that says, um, for this level of weather hazard or what could even be a tsunami, um, we're activating the EOC and here's the agencies are going to report. Some of them are less certain, um, you know, a high wind event, um, mm -hmm. sometimes not as concerning. Maybe the wind isn't going to it's not as for a long duration or something like that, that it's not automatic. We have documented kind of a set of triggers that we look at or conditions okay. like that we might want to do it and this one um, the extent of what we are anticipating was just we were concerned about down power lines and just things like blown roofs or whatever and um, we really thought having agencies who would need to respond to those kind of calls quickly together in one place was important and so some of them it's it's hard and fast if if this then this room activates any kind of tsunami watch warning or advisory some of them you know it's it's more of a gray area um and but what we do is internally when there's something of concern out there at the very least we have our staff monitoring it so maybe there's some um, potential for flooding um, we always have somebody who's on alert. We have an after hours roster um, to take any calls to kind of monitor things if, if there's a concern and then has the ability to quickly activate the city partners. We also have nonprofit partners and private sector partners to report here if needed. So we've actually done a lot of work going hazard by hazard um, over that uh, the last year or so. And it includes not just when this activates, but when might we need to um, use our alert systems? What are those messages that would go out? Um, we have a whole bunch of templates ready to go for the things that we can expect to happen. But there's always a stuff that you can't expect. And um, we try to be ready for that too. Um, 
the most important thing we can be is flexible. And so we maintain a roster of contacts from all the key agencies. We have methods to get in touch with them quickly. And we, you know, and to relay when to report, who needs to report. And so even when it's something we haven't thought of, um, we have a procedure to kind of quickly recall people together here. Not a wildland fire, but we did have a fire um, in Marco Polo. At that time, was the EOC activated? Yeah, the EOC did activate for that one. That's one of the other things, you know, when we don't exactly, you know, not every time Mm -hmm. um, there's a, a, a residential fire, does that require us to activate because fire works closely with the Red Cross and, and, you know, it doesn't need a bunch of other city agencies to provide resources. Um, But one of the things we look at is a consideration for activating this room is just how many residential structures were impacted? Are there evacuations? Do shelters need to be open? There's considerations that um, even though we might not have a hard and fast rule that every time there's a condo fire, we come to the emergency operations center, we know things that might require support from this room. So we have those considerations mapped out as best we can anticipate them. A natural reaction after something like this is people are kind of, they're, they're on edge, right? They're a little more on alert. A brush fire here, maybe it's not threatening any lives or homes, creates a little more anxiety, right? So HFD or, or 911 calls go up, um, social media posts go up, and people wonder if they should evacuate. You know, there's just that, they're just on edge. What's your message to folks right now when fires do flare up here on Oahu? I think, you know, one thing is is that we're not sending emergency alerts every time that there's a fire but we do have procedures for when um, the scale of it is such that the fire department believes that evacuations are even possible um, to kind of activate the city's response network the emergency operations center and to get those emergency alerts out so you know, we understand everybody's jumpy when they, they see yeah, these things. Yeah. Um, I mean, definitely reporting to 911 if there's, you know, any kind of, of, of threat. But we're, we use those emergency notification s- systems to relate urgent life-saving instructions. So not every fire rises to that mm-hmm. level of, um, of, of concern where we have to do, activate those systems. But we do have procedures that if there's a need for the public to take action, that we're going to activate those systems and, and get the message out to them. Yeah. Jennifer, for those who aren't familiar, where were you before this and what prepared you for this role that you're currently in? Nothing ever prepared <laughs> you for this role. Um, I, uh, I, just prior to this, I worked for the state of Hawaii at the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency. Um, I worked um, at Hawaiian Airlines for a little bit uh, doing uh, their emergency response. And then for that many years at the American Red Cross, both at their national headquarters and then at the local chapter here in Hawaii. So have a sense of the private sector, the government side and the nonprofit side, um, which all are on display in Maui and how important having those relationships with the private sector and the nonprofit sector are to effective response. You know, the city, if we just operated this emergency operations center with only the city agencies, we would be doing a disservice to the public. You know, having all of those key people in the room, whether it's the Red Cross or HECO or, you know, the the cell carriers, like we've got to make sure that our we're casting our net widely so that all the critical players that we need to meet the needs that are going to be out there are here. And so um, I think that that 
you know, we uh, Maui has taught us a lot, but it's reemphasized a lot for us, stuff we already knew. And I think that's one of the things, how important the community response is, the nonprofit response, um, and the private sector partnerships, and how our role isn't to do everything, you know, from the Department of Emergency mm -hmm. Management, but it's to create conditions where those agencies that have, you know, whether it's a disaster mission like Salvation Army or Red Cross, or it's, you know, getting power and communications restored, we make it possible for those agencies to do what they need to do um, by giving them the right information, the situational awareness, things like that. But that resume you ran down, um, all in emergency management, did you know you wanted to go into this? Where did that come from? So I, by, by mistake, I oh, think as okay. almost any emergency manager is like, how'd you get it? It's, you'll never hear the same story. I uh, graduated from college and I work for a for-profit um, company and no offense to for-profit, um, <laughs> but uh, it, 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 I didn't feel great about it. And I think mainly because they were, they were schools were their customers and I was like, oh, I don't like making money off of schools. So um, I, were, I lived in Washington, D.C. at the time and I was like, I want to do good. And so I saw this job for the Red Cross and I, oh, I know them. Okay, I'll apply. And um, it was during a hurricane response and the woman I interviewed with was incredibly harried. She had a pager at the time, which was the coolest thing like I ever ha saw. Someone had a pager and uh, you know, she was getting her pager was going off and there's just so much excitement going on and adrenaline in the room. And I just, I was hooked. And so um, that uh, being able to do good and have hard problems and interesting problems, but ultimately you're serving the public, it, that combination has always just really appealed to me. And um, it's never failed, unfortunately, to not be interesting and challenging and important and so that's kind of what's kept me going <laughs> yeah interesting challenging i can definitely you know i know what you mean by the adrenaline but and this comes with the job but that has the potential to also take a toll right with so much emphasis on mental health these days what do you do to kind of manage that stress and especially after seeing so much loss and grief on maui I'm probably not the poster child for um, managing uh, stress. Well, it, it <laughs> <laughs> no, um, you know, I think um, it, it is really hard. And, and this this response is is, I think, added to that a lot because um, the the weight of the responsibility, I think, I mean, we've always felt it. We, we still feel it. But like how important what we do and um, and the fact that really like, you know, it, it will save lives to do what we're supposed to do and that there's no margin for error, uh, that's really concerning and to see like just what people are, are going through afterwards. So I think, you know, for myself, it's um, trying to have balance, you know, um, and not take a step back because you do see that people who don't kind of give themselves that space stop thinking well and, and, and thinking clearly about what needs to be done. But I think also it's one step at a time. You know, I think there's a, a need after this to like, you know, oh, well, there's this gap and this gap and this gap. And, and you know, there's a lot of pressure to, to answer questions. I think it's explaining, you know, what is, what's a gap, and then being methodical in your approach that it's, you can't do everything at once 
right away that there are things that this is really uncovered that we've got to understand more, whether it's, you know, the wildfire risk, you know, um, what actions we need to take to reduce it. But I think um, for me, it's it's kind of making sure that we understand big picture and one step at a time that we're being thoughtful, methodical and in, in getting there in a structured way and not just you know, running around doing stuff is is really important. I think that takes a lot of stress out of it to kind of know that you're intentionally following a plan and um, really understanding the problem and and what needs to be done and communicating that for me really helps, honestly, because um, it it stops the reactiveness of day to day and and new problems. You know, kind of always putting no pun intended fires out, mm-hmm. but really taking a thoughtful approach mm-hmm. to it. You know, the recording of this podcast also falls on the week that we commemorate the 22nd anniversary of 9-11. Where were you, if you remember um, your experience of 9-11, and how do you think that shaped you? Uh, I was working for the Red Cross uh, back then. I was at home uh, getting ready for work. I was going in a little bit late because I had broken my arm recently, and I was at a physical therapy appointment, and I uh, saw the the news was on and saw the... um, the first plane go in and and then shortly after the second plane and then I was supposed to work at in Virginia was the Red Cross um, Department Operations Center where they ran all the national operations and I was working out of that office that day and so I drove to work and uh, there was all the smoke coming up over um, the trees on the highway and it was I remember not knowing uh, what had gone on but there was so much smoke and um, remember frantically hitting the the buttons on the radio trying to figure out what was happening over there and it took about maybe 15 minutes before they came on and said it was the pentagon and so that really shaped me in that um i i was very young and very junior and i saw some really extraordinary leadership um that day and i saw some real deficits in leadership and i think that really shaped kind of what i looked look for and um, what I want to project in in a moment like that. I think it showed me professionalism that, um, you know, when all this happens, I remember there was a a lady who's much older and more seasoned than me and she, we were watching the towers fall and then she's kind of said to me, you good? And I was like, you know, like kind of, I think I must have had an expression on my face and I said, yeah, and she goes, okay, let's keep going, you know, and um, and that was kind of like, okay, were take, you, take. Were you good? Nobody was good that day, but it was kind of like, you know, kind of that check, you got yourself together, yep, okay, let's keep going, we've got stuff to do, and I, I do think kind of that, like, yes, this is hard, this is painful, like, kind of, but we got stuff to do, like, we got to push through this and on to the next thing, and that's kind of what she was saying to me um, without so many words, mm-hmm. is that, Take a moment if you need it, but we got stuff to do, and uh, and and you know we did. There was, it, and I think I think the other thing that showed me is that the you know that you have to always imagine. I think people explain away a lot of like risk, like um, oh it won't ever be that bad here, or you know that couldn't happen. And so it really showed me what a big catastrophic event looks like up close, and that you really have to be prepared for anything even though we didn't imagine what happened on Maui you know a few months ago as our worst case scenario 
we need to have systems that are flexible enough, nimble enough, have partnerships so that we have the right people in the room making smart decisions really fast. And so I can't predict every bad thing that's gonna happen, but I do think it showed me that like, if you imagine big and plan big, whatever that big thing is, you're at a better starting point than if you think small and, and prepare small. And so, um, yeah, every disaster has been something that wasn't ever in, uh, for the most part, in a book written down. It was new and brand new. And I think it's taught me kind of a flexibility with um, that there's never going to be a script for this, but that there's some overarching things that you need to do to be ready and focus on those because it's kind of like your, your core, your core competencies, you know, and so it's like, it's almost like being in shape, you know, it's like, so whether you're going to have to bike 10 miles or, or, you know, run, it's like you, you've got that baseline fitness, I think, for response. And um, so there's certain things I think I've always looked to that like are kind of key things we need to have to get started off well, to have the right partnerships in place that like I kind of try to focus on and and how we work, even though people want to often drill down, well, what about this hazard? What about this? Um, I think because you can't always predict the exact thing that's going to happen if you get kind of the nuts and bolts and the individual pieces right that really no matter what response matter a whole lot to how well it goes that approach I think is important um, to kind of have those thought out yeah and, and while a good plan obviously helps I want to go back to a question that I asked you previously and I want to ask it a different way mm-hmm. um, so you know, when someone asks you, you good, has there ever been a time where, where you weren't or what is it that helps you be good? You know, because not everyone's built like that. When you're dealing with an emergency like 9-11, like the Maui fires, when you're seeing what you're seeing, what is it, you know, you know somewhere along the line that made you be good? <laughs> um, you know, I have an advantage on like first responders, a lot of people in the field is that I'm in and emergency management agencies were a little bit a step removed. I'm in this room, there's no windows. A lot of EOCs are like this, where um, I think that, and we're kind of doing overall coordination. We're not kind of sitting in front of someone who's just lost everything, trying to help them directly. So I think a little bit of that, that separation, for me personally, um, it makes it a little bit easier to, I think, Put your head down it's it i my hats go off to those you know volunteers and responders who are out there day in day out meeting with the people i mean in in a sense in this room we're kind of coordinating from behind i think that helps me a little bit but i don't know it's i've never really thought about it it's just an interesting question a lot like why why you just do but you can understand that not everyone can be good in those situations it, it's you know some people just don't not built that way yeah i I don't know. I think it's um, it's a job. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody um, in this this job. I, I would be surprised if nobody has their moments. I mean, do we feel stressed? Do you feel uh, upset? The weight of it, sure. But um, I think you know you really have to stay focused on what you've got to do, and in the pace and the intensity sometimes is is really hard. I think I always think about you know. It, it's kind of indulgent because you know 
the people are the ones who've been affected. You know, I guess that's kind of also my sense, even though, yes, I know, um, you know, it's hard, but hard for me, you know, in a lot of these situations, I'm going home to my house at night. I have a bed to sleep in and, and, um, you know, I've always been able to kind of look at like, you know, the bigger picture, which is usually what we're trying to do is help people whose lives have just been upended. So yes, hard, it's all relative, right? Like I'm most of the time in a lucky situation um, where I'm not directly affected. I'm supporting someone who is. I think that's what makes things so hard in Maui. And you could feel that while you were there is that um, so many of the people who are doing that are directly affected. They're not going to their homes every night. And that was really eye-opening. And I mean, I think that's really something for us to think about here. If we had a large hurricane or whatever, whatever that you have a workforce that's trying to help other people but um is really hurting themselves so um yeah i um no i'm sorry i don't have a more eloquent answer to the the why it's just we're we're glad we're glad you're built that yeah no no it's just this position no it's uh, (laughs) no i i feel for i mean it's 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 always the best job um you know i it's it's really meaningful i think you know i think being in this job it's like you've got to at the end of the day, really care about, you know, what you're doing. You can't, you know, do it just a little bit or, or you know, good enough. And it, we're never going to be, you know, there's always going to be things to improve on because the threats evolve, things yeah. evolve, partners evolve. But um, I think you just got to keep at it. And, and unfortunately, when learn from the tragedies here is like, what, what can we take away so that we either can prevent this from happening again or if something similar does happen like how do we respond as quickly and effectively as we can well jennifer is there anything we missed (laughs) um i think you know going forward i think one of the things that this has been something on my mind for a while and i think it's you know how to effectively kind of empower the community response like one of the things that strikes me every time we have a event here you know and this happened again on Maui is how fast the community is coming together supporting community how important the nonprofits are in like doing what they do and I think for me that's one of the things that we've been trying to get good systems in place to empower that and to 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 make sure that they're successful and helping others you know um, when an event happens and I think, you know, one thing that I want to take away from this is is really learning how to make that coordination as effective as possible. I've just been floored by the amount of support from within Hawaii, from out of, out of Hawaii, all of these groups coming together to help. And my hat's off to them and trying to figure out is just how to most effectively coordinate all this if it happened here and make communities feel empowered to kind of do what's best for their communities, but to have the right support, I think is really something I take away watching this, wanting to make sure that that we're doing our best on Oahu um, for that kind of response effort, like we saw in the Maui communities. Well, Jennifer, thank you for your time. Thank you. And if you have a question for Jennifer, Mayor Rick Blangiardi, or any of the departments here in the city and county of Honolulu, you can submit your podcast questions by heading to wanoahu.org slash podcast. Next week, we'll be back with Mayor Rick Blangiardi. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, aloha.